Good morning. Thanks for being at this uh, Foundations Breakout. If you have your packets, if you would turn to pages 42 and 43 for our time together this morning. Thanks for choosing this session. I appreciate it. We are going to be looking at one of the most uh, gripping, poignant uh, passages in at least the Old Testament that talks about our relationship with the Lord. Let me frame our time together in God's Word so you know why I chose this and why we feel like this is a, a foundational a teaching. So many of you know the work of Jesus Christ as, as he comes into our life by the power of the Holy Spirit. It actually does two things for us. First, Jesus Christ assures the forgiveness for us from the guilt of our sins. We have forgiveness from guilt, but the other thing is we have freedom from the shame of sin. So those two things are always at work when Christ comes into our life. Freedom, uh, sorry, forgiveness from guilt and freedom from shame. So the, the forgiveness of guilt has to do with our legal standing before God. And often it's talked about, maybe you've heard it in terms of a courtroom scene. We're on trial for crimes against God, and then Jesus Christ steps forward, and he takes all of our guilt. And the pronouncement because of his offer is this, we are no longer guilty, we're not guilty. And that's, that's the forgiveness of our guilt. But that's like half of the gospel. The other half of the gospel is freedom from shame. And that has not as much to do with the legal standing as much as with our inner cleansing. It's sort of that nagging feeling we all have because of what we've done or what has been done to us because of sin that we're, that we're unclean, we're unworthy, we're just not right somehow. Now, it's incredibly easy for in the Christian life to affirm forgiveness from guilt, and yet to struggle with freedom from shame. That's why many Christians often will say, I know I'm forgiven, but I just don't feel forgiven. Or if God has forgiven me, why do I feel so bad about myself? And friends, our passage this morning in Ezekiel 16 is aimed directly at that struggle. That's what it's dealing with. Uh, it was written by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel at a time when God's people were in exile in Babylon. They had been driven from their homeland and enslaved in a foreign land because of their rebellion against God, despite years of pleadings and warnings by prophet after prophet after prophet. So they were in captivity, and at this point, they were a shamed people. They're enslaved, they are mocked. They were known throughout the known world as those who had been unfaithful to God. So in Ezekiel 16, what the prophet does is he exposes their shame and then he heals them of their shame. Now, if you notice on your outline, and it's also true on page 42 in the text, that the way that Ezekiel wrote this passage is sort of as a three-act play. So if you notice on your, your outline, in Act 1, we have God, the passionate lover, and that's verses 3 to 14. And then in Act 2 is God, the wounded lover, and that's verses 15 to 42. And then finally, there's God, the faithful lover, and that'll be the end of the passage there. I trust that God will really use our time together in this word, not only to remind you of your forgiveness from the guilt of sin, 
but to free you from the lingering shame of sin. So let me pray. God, we're very grateful for our time together this morning and even this weekend, how refreshing it has been to be in community with each other and under the ministry of your word. And so, Father, even as we begin uh, this day, this morning, your day in the word, would you give us ears to hear? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our first point is God the passionate lover. Let me read Act 1 of Ezekiel 16. Thus says the Lord God of Jerusalem, Your origin and birth of the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but... You were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. But when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. And then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in the fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus, You were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. What a way to start this chapter. This is God, the passionate lover. So a couple things to notice. Notice that the very first image that we see in this passage, it's in verses four and five, is somewhat shocking. It's a newborn baby girl who has been thrown out naked into a field to die from exposure. Now, sadly, this was not uncommon in the ancient world, even in some places in our world today. Why? No offense at all, ladies. But back then, it was understood girls were not profitable to have. And in fact, archaeologists years ago found found a portion of a manuscript from a merchant who was away from his family while his wife was pregnant. And that little scrap of parchment said this, remember, if it's a girl, throw it out. Look at verse five. No eye 
pitied you, to do any of these things to you out of compassion to you. You were cast out onto the open field. You were abhorred on the day that you were born. But here's the drama of the passage, and it starts in verse 6. You probably saw it. God himself comes into the field and has a very different reaction. Look at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. See, what happens here is God not only commands her to live, that's verse 6, But the rest of the passage helps us understand how God begins to support her and provide for her. And friends, at the very beginning of this passage, we see an amazing act of grace. Here's this man imaging God who's not only rescuing an unwanted baby, but it's a baby girl. Now, in earthly terms, he'll never make any profit from his actions. She she has no family. She has no dowry, nothing. So listen, just God taking this baby and helping it to live is amazing. And if this were any other story or maybe any, any Disney movie, what would happen now is this girl would have been brought up on this rich man's estate And she would have been reminded every day how lucky she was. And therefore, she had better work hard to serve the master who had saved her. But the Bible is always better than Disney. Look at verse 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, Behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you, little hints of Ruth there, right? And covered your nakedness. Listen to this. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is amazing. This is amazing. God says, I just don't want you as my maid I want you as my wife. Listen, a fuller picture of this is seen later on in the prophet Hosea. I just want to read you just two verses from it because it picks up this theme that begins to wind its way all through the Old Testament. Listen to what it says. On that day, declares the Lord, I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and in justice and mercy and compassion. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you will know that I am the Lord. So friends, as this passage begins, you have to see what's happening. Here God is rescuing an unwanted person by grace, and he's coming to her. And he's saying to her, I don't want you to be my inferior. I want you to be my partner. I don't simply want your dutiful service. I want your faithful and intimate love. Like I said before, I don't want you for my maid. I want you for my bride. This is an amazing picture of God. I remember 30 years ago, when, when I was on my knees in a restaurant and, and I was proposing to Shannon 
and I asked her to be my wife. You know what Ezekiel has the audacity to say? The God of the universe is on his knees before you and me. And he's the maker of heaven and earth. He wants an intimate relationship with us. Like many of you know this, there are a lot of images that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God. So there's some scriptures that talk about God being a king and us being subjects. Others, God is the shepherd, we're the sheep. Others, he's the father, we're children. All of them are good, they're right, they're true. But here, in this passage, he blows every other category to pieces. Because what he says is, I want you as my spouse. As a husband relates to his wife, this is how I now want to relate to you. That's crazy. Look look at the quote on the top of your outline from Isaiah 62. Look at what it says. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Let me spend a moment here. This is profound. Notice closely what it says and what it doesn't say. It does not say as a husband rejoices over his wife. It says as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. In other words, God picks the point in the marriage relationship when the feelings are the most intense and the passions are the most inflamed, the wedding day. And he says, that's how I want you to think of how I think about you. So, friends, what does this mean for us? What does that say as we start about the type of relationship that God wants with us and for us? Three things right on your outline. You can fill them in if you want. First, God is calling us into an exclusive relationship, an exclusive relationship. Parents can have a number of kids. Shannon and I have four. You and I can have many friends, but you can only have one spouse. And so part of what's woven into this image is this. God is saying that we must love him as the supreme love of our lives. It is an exclusive relationship. Second thing, God is calling us into a comprehensive relationship. Comprehensive relationship. Now, I wasn't the the brightest bulb in the chandelier when I got married, okay? But I, I, I quickly realized something when I got married, and guys, you might want to write this down as wisdom for the future, okay? Here it is. I realized when I got married that I wasn't single anymore. (laughs) Amazing, huh? (laughs) It's profound if we apply it to our relationship with the Lord. Because when God calls you and I into a relationship with him, we're not single anymore. It means that there can be no areas of life that are off limits to him or hidden from him. No, no area of life that doesn't involve our relationship with him, just as is true in a godly marriage. See, my, my ring, which I can no longer get off my finger after all these years, 
My ring tells me 24-7 that I'm married to Shannon. There are no days off. There's no putting my ring in the pocket and pretending it didn't happen for a while. Same is true in our relationship with God. Third thing is this. God is calling us into a delightful relationship, a delightful relationship. So one of the blessings of marriage is knowing that your spouse finds you delightful even if nobody else does. So uh, over the years, as we've been in ministry, uh, we have gotten to know hundreds and hundreds of students. And there have come moments when when we get to know a student, and none of you are here, so nothing I'm going to say applies to any of you, right? I say that every year. But anyway, we're always tempted to look at a student and go, who's going to marry that one? Like, really, who's going to marry that one? This is okay. And you know what's amazing? I'm sure people said that about me. Who's going to marry that one? But you know what's amazing? Somebody marries them. And Shannon married me. Not because they had to, or because, well, I lost the bet. (laughs) But because, by the grace of God, they find that other person utterly delightful. And they want to spend the rest of their lives with them. Friends, connect that to your relationship with the Lord. When God sees you, he utterly delights in you because of Christ. Now, he may be, at least in your mind, the only one who does, but he does. He does not look at you and say, oh, all right, they'll do. They'll do. They just squeaked in. Not at all. Friends, God is our passionate lover. He he did it willingly. He did it voluntarily. He does it eagerly. He longs to be your lover. Well, I wish we could stop the story there and get a cup of coffee and wait for our final closing section, but act two begins sort of the downside of the drama of this story. And that's where we talk about God being the wounded lover. So let me read to you Act 2 of Ezekiel 16, starting at verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been or ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men and with them you played the whore. And you took the embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them and also my bread that I gave you. I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma and so it was declared the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me 
and these you sacrifice to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you didn't remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. How sick is your Heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers. You bribed them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you are different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers, and with all your abominable idols, because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy, and I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore. And you shall also give payment no more. So I will satisfy my wrath on you. And my jealousy shall depart from you. Then I will be calm and will no more be angry. Whoa. Have you ever heard the word whore that many times on a Sunday morning? This is, a, this is a profoundly disturbing passage, isn't it? And friends, what we see here in this act two of this three-act play is simply this. Every gift that the bride received from her husband, she used to attract other lovers. And if you're following along, she did it in increasingly bold and provocative ways. Just look back, if you would, at uh, verse 16. 
but says, you, you took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines. On them you played the whore. And he says, the like has never been, nor ever shall be. And then look down, if you would, at verse 25. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and, and multiplying your whorings. Tell you what, friends, if you were to read this in the original language, which is Hebrew, it is very, very provocative. The image is that this woman is taking everything that she could possibly use to attract other men, and she's doing it. That whole thing about going going to the the edge of the city and offering herself literally, and, and I don't mean this to be offensive to everyone, so I'll be careful as I say it. Literally, she's dressing herself in wonderful gowns. She's going to where the businessmen pass by in the way of the city. She's sitting there, and she's flapping open her, her dress to them and saying, anybody want any? Anybody want any? That's what's going on. And friends, this section is so unbelievably graphic in the original Hebrew that historically Jewish men who had not yet reached the age of 30 were forbidden from reading this section. Bottom line picture is this. What's being described here is, is sexual addiction. It's graphic, it's disturbing, but it drives right to the heart of the very nature of what sin is all about. And this passage gives us a disturbing picture of sin. It can be summarized two ways, right on your, your outline. So it says sin is using God's gifts to attract other lovers. Sin is using God's gifts to attract other lovers. And again, that really is the theme of this passage, that the woman, the bride, took the good things that God had showered her with, garments and oil and incense, even children and her beauty, and she used them to attract and flirt with other lovers. And hopefully you notice that the images in this passage go back and forth between adultery and idolatry. Why? Because at the heart level, they are the same thing. Adultery and idolatry. This is what's going on. We all realize this. On a heart level, all of us want to be loved and cherished and welcomed and accepted. We all want other people to want us and need us. We all want to know that we are somehow special. And see, what happens in our sin, though, is we look to things, often good things, to accomplish that for us. So we look to grades or friends or working out or career, or sports, or other relationships. In other words, we take all the good gifts that God has given us so that we can honor him and love him and serve him, and we use them to make ourselves feel great. And what this passage is saying is this, on a heart level, whatever you are looking at in your life to do that for you, in a sense, you're in bed with that thing. It's a fatal attraction. 
Listen, we all know how unbelievably intense sexual passion and desire can be. Well, Ezekiel exposes something that we all want to keep hidden, and it's this. Anything or anyone that you or I look to besides God to be our source of meaning or joy or contentment, that thing is practically our God. No matter what the songs we sing in worship or how many Bible verses we know or how many conferences we go to, how many of us are so tempted we take our God-given intellect or our physical condition, or our relational abilities, or our drive, or our determination, and we make them all about us. And then then our emotions rise or fall depending on our performance and other people's reaction. You might be wondering, what's so bad about that? Well, it's, it's your second point there, fill it in. Sin is not only breaking God's rules, it's breaking God's heart. See, friends, this is huge. And this is why the passage starts out with that whole thing about God, the passionate lover. You have to understand the context here. Sin is not just, oops, broke that law. But God is our our passionate lover. And therefore, sin is not just breaking his rules, it's breaking his heart. Listen, you and I know this. We know that the depth to which someone can hurt us is directly related to the depth of our relationship with them, right? So many of you, I'm sorry, you know, I don't even know your names at this point, but if you came up to me and said, lousy talk, Fodale. I'd be like, sorry. If one of our staff team, who I've known for years, came, I'd be like, oh, okay. Boy, that's hard to hear. I want to grow. If my wife came up to me and said, I wish I had gone to another breakout. Yeah. Like, that, that would be devastating. And you see, in the first act of Ezekiel 16... God made it abundantly clear he's in that latter category with us. He's given his heart to us. And friends, when you give your heart to someone, you all know how easy it is to get hurt. Let me trace out two examples just to press it home a little bit more. So guys, imagine that someday you, you, you marry the woman of your dreams You're just delighted that God would have put this woman in your life. You have a few kids. Life is going along well, and you're supposed to be at at work all day, but you decide to come home on the lunch hour to surprise her. And you you bring some flowers home and everything. And and as as you drive up to the house, you notice that there's another car in the driveway. And you go inside and and the kids are watching TV, and you say, where's mom? And they said, she told us that we can't go upstairs. We have to stay down here for a while and not to disturb her. And then you you go upstairs, and the bedroom door is closed, and you're hearing noise, and you open the door, 
And there's your wife in bed with another man. And she looks at you and she says, you're not supposed to be home till five, okay? Sorry, but this has just gotten a little bit boring, okay? So my life is small. I needed to bring some excitement. Uh, I'll be with you later. Can you watch the kids? Shut the door on the way out. Like, guys, how would you ever get past that? Or ladies, you marry the man of your dreams, the man who says, like Boaz, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide for you. You will be the center of, of my affections. And then one day you're out with the kids in the minivan and you're coming home early. Trip ran short. You see what I'm going to do with this scenario. There's another car in the driveway. This feeling comes over you. Say, kids, stay in the van for a couple minutes. I need to figure out what's going on. So you go inside, go upstairs, and he looks at you and says, yeah, you're supposed to have the kids today. And you know what? Since you've been having the kids, your shape is just sort of off, okay? And there's someone at my office that's so much more attractive than you. So, yeah, sorry I had to see that, but can you shut the door on the way out? Maybe you and your kids can go out for a while. How would you ever recover from that? And those examples are disturbing, and they're just like heart-wrenching. They're the nightmare come true. But what you have to realize is it only begins to picture the deep hurt that God experiences whenever we sin against him. This, this picture emerges from this passage of God as just a wounded lover. And friends, until you understand that, you'll never know how deep your sin is and how great God's affection toward you is as well. Let's face it, it's true in my life, it's probably true in yours. There are very few people that I give my heart to. My time, sure. My money, okay. But my heart, especially if I know they're going to break it, like again and again and again, you and I, we back off of that, don't we? But here, God does the unthinkable. He knows who we are. He knows what we're going to do, and he still gives his heart to us. You know what's ironic about what's going on in this passage? Did you notice what happened at the end? Did you notice what the other lovers did to this woman? Again, look at verse 39, if you would. Look what it says. I will give you into their hands. They shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. In other words, this woman thought, these men love me. But at the end, they just came and destroyed her. Destroyed her. And friends, it's a profound understanding from the scripture. You and I will never know what we are in bed with, spiritually speaking, until it turns on you. And it will turn on you. Many of us, we, we, we put our hope and our joy in our cartemon in grades, and grades are great until you realize, I got to study for the next exam now. And friends are 
wonderful until you feel forgotten or forsaken or snubbed. You realize your friends are sinners too. And partying is great until that first hangover, and then you realize they only like me because I'm drunk. And sports are great until that injury comes. You realize, what did I just build my life on? And even serving the Lord is great until you realize you didn't get the bounce from it that you really wanted. You didn't score any points with him because the scoreboard's already full because of Christ. Friends, we've all done it. And we've all faced it. Our false gods betray us. They fail to deliver on their promises. And instead, here's what happens though. Instead of in that moment turning to the true lover of our souls, we just try fake lovers again. We say, okay, okay, I made a bad choice in who I'm dating. I need another person. Or I need more friends. Or I need to switch schools. Or I need a better major. Or I need a different team, or I got to wait for a different season. Some of us go inward, some of us go outward, but it's so hard to go upward to the Lord. So is there any hope for people like us? I don't know about you, didn't this act end on a very chilling note? Look at verse 41. They shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. Here it is. I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall get payment no more. And then this next phrase is chilling. So I will satisfy my wrath on you. And you're like, oh, no, what have we done? I'm so glad Ezekiel didn't end. And verse 42. Let's keep reading. So let's talk about God, God the faithful lover. It's our final act in this amazing three-act play, God the faithful lover. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I'll establish my covenant with you. And you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth Again, because of your shame, when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. (sighs) Friends, there's this unbelievable tension that propels so much, at least of the Old Testament. So on the one hand, you have statements like we read in in verse 42. I will satisfy my wrath on you. Or earlier in verse 38, it says, I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged. Like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Or even verse 
59, at the top of our passage, I will deal with you as you have done. You're like, oh, no, no. And then, so that's one side. Then you come to verses like verse 60. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. And so, do you see the two sides of this tension? So, so we're led to ask, which is it, God? Are we going to be destroyed in your anger, or are we going to be swept up in your arms of affection? Like, which is it? Tell us. And the key to this passage and the beauty of the gospel is verses 62 and 63. Can I just read it again? I will establish my covenant with you. You shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember, be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Do you love that phrase, when I atone for all that you have done? And you wonder, who could possibly atone for all that we have done? And the Lord says, I I will. And notice the effect of it in verse 63. No more shame, no more shame. How is this possible? We're moving toward closure there. How is this possible? Okay, let me explain. Remember how the passage began. Remember there, there was an image of a wedding. So did you know that the very first sign that Jesus did in his public ministry was at a wedding? No coincidence The passage is right at the bottom of your outline there from John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Has his reaction ever surprised you? It's a little bit odd. Like, Jesus, they've run out of wine. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Strange. Maybe it was a bad day. More going on. So in John's gospel, whenever, whenever it says my hour or his hour, it always means the hour of his death. That's code, the hour of his death. Huh, helpful. Let me read, the, read it again. She's a, a, mar- a mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to be? How does this have to do with me? It's not my time to die yet. Didn't make it any clearer, did it? It's odd. Remember, at this point, Jesus was 30 years old when he began his public ministry. I, I didn't get married until I was 31. And in, in those years before my own marriage, Every time I was at a wedding, I would think ahead to what my wedding might look like someday. You see, Jesus knew, though, exactly what his marriage was going to be like. Jesus knew that in order to have his bride, his people, the church, fall into his arms, that the wine for his wedding would have to be his blood. It would have to be his blood. In other words, there was a barrier of sin and the stain of shame that had to be dealt with. So I don't know this, but I wonder if at that wedding, Jesus was thinking ahead 
to what it would take for him to have us fall into his arms. And when Mary said, they have no wine, can you provide wine? He said, it's not my time yet. Is it my time to die yet? This is not my time. See, Jesus knew that in order to raise a cup of joy at his wedding feast, he first had to drink the cup of God's wrath and anger at us for all of our adultery and all of our idolatry. And see, the the cross of Jesus is where everything begins to fall into place and it begins to make sense. Remember what Ezekiel said? That those other lovers are going to come and they're going to hack you to pieces. But the gospel reminds us that Jesus was hacked to pieces for us. Those other lovers, if you remember, were going to strip us naked and bare. Jesus on the cross was stripped naked. He hung there bare for us. Other lovers always leave us ugly. But this lover, Jesus, gave up his beauty and he gave it to us. And then he took upon himself all of our shame and all of our guilt and all of our ugliness. Friends, over the years, I have done a lot of weddings. And there is one thing I have always noticed. Every single Bride, without exception, looks absolutely gorgeous on her wedding day. Guys, get ready for it. Ain't anyone going to be staring at you for long. And that is a small picture of the wonder of the gospel. That if you're in Christ, you are clothed in the robes of the righteousness of our Savior, such that when God sees you. It's like at a wedding when those doors open, everyone's like, when God sees you, all he sees is a beauty that you have been clothed in because of the work of his faithful son, Jesus. See, friends, the gospel is you are worse than you could ever imagine. But Because of Christ, you are more loved than you could ever believe. And because that beauty has been secured for you by Christ, not by you, nothing could ever touch it. So how do we respond to a passage like Ezekiel 16? I'd encourage you, consider your sin in a whole new light. Please understand, it's not only breaking God's law, it's breaking God's heart. Look at your idols in a whole new way, the things that we give ourselves to. Look at them as lovers who are competing for your affection with the one who has promised to give everything to you. And then run to Jesus with renewed eagerness. He's He has forgiven you of your guilt, and he has freed you from shame. Friends, if you don't know Jesus yet, glad you're at the conference. If you come through it and you're still on the edge, I'm just praying that Ezekiel 16 would convince you that the love and affection that the gospel promises you is far beyond your wildest imaginations. Why would you not turn to him? And if you want to talk about it, feel free to access your staff or me afterwards. But friends, if you hear and, and you claim to know and love Jesus Christ, 
Repent of your sin. Push away the idols and bask in the warmth of the one who gave himself for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Father, we understand that these other competing lovers in our life, they, they hack us to pieces, they strip us naked and bare, they leave us ugly. But our Lord Jesus Christ was hacked to pieces for us. He was stripped naked and bare. He has given us his beauty. Father, help us by the power of the gospel to consider our sin in a whole new light, to repent and believe in the gospel that we are forgiven and freed because of the true lover of our souls, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.